0: This weekend retreat was given at our Lady of Good Counsel Retreat House in Waverly, Nebraska by Father Gary Coulter, March 23rd to 25th, 2018, on the topic, Finding Peace in the Divine Will. These and other recordings are available at our website, goodcouncilretreat.com. I'm still a beginner at the writings of Louisa Picoretta and still learning, but I have found this season of Lent to be a great time to meditate on her writings and on the Hours of the Passion and to begin to enter into this message and devotion. But tonight what I wanted to do was just give a brief biographical overview of the life of Louisa Picoretta and also her connection with St. Hannibal de Francia. On April twenty-third, 1865, the second Sunday of Easter, which today we would know as Divine Mercy Sunday, the servant of God, Luisa Picaretta was born and baptized on the same day in Corrado, Italy, the province of Bari, where she would live her entire life. From an early age, Luisa had a desire for hiddenness. As a toddler, her favorite spot was in a hollow tree in which she would spend hours alone in prayer. When guests arrived at her family home, she could not be found, for she hid behind a bed in prayer. As a mere child, she suffered from terrible demonic nightmares. And it seems these experiences were, in fact, what probably caused her to flee with such fervor to Jesus in prayer. She grew in an utter dependency on Christ, which is no doubt what disposed her to be an instrument in the hand of God. In Jesus' own word to Louisa, he explained how he chose her. I went around the earth over and over again and beheld all souls, one by one, to find the lowliest of all. At age 12, Louisa began to hear Jesus speaking to her interiorly. These locutions began to come to her in the most precious moments after receiving Holy Communion. He would instruct her, correct her, and guide her. After a year of this occurring, there was a life-changing experience for Louisa, which invited her to become a victim's soul. One day she heard an uproar coming from the street. She went to the balcony to see what was happening. And she saw the street crowded with shouting people and armed soldiers who were leading three prisoners. What Louisa saw and heard was a vision of Jesus carrying the cross. And as Louisa contemplated this sad procession with deep sorrow and terror, Jesus stopped looked up at her and said, "'Soul, help me.'" From this time on, Louise would accept her sufferings as offerings to lessen the pain of others, including souls in purgatory, and to help bring about conversions. It was not long after this that her mystical life and several extraordinary phenomena increased. At the age of 17, Picaretta is believed to have experienced a mystical union with Jesus akin to the religious ecstasy experienced by St. Teresa of Avila. She soon became incapable of keeping down ordinary food and began her lifelong Eucharistic fast. The divine will, along with the daily Eucharist, would constitute her daily bread. Reminiscent of Jesus' words in John 4.34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Adding to this utter dependence upon God, another phenomenon occurred each morning. She was totally rigid and incapable of being moved, even by several strong people. It was not until a priest would come to bless her that she could regain movement of her arms and legs. For the next 64 years until her death, she remained bedridden, and this was her life. Perhaps the simplest life the world has ever seen the most dependent upon God. Neither her bodily nourishment nor even her ability to move her own limbs came from any source but God, given to her through the hands of a Catholic priest. Louisa had expressed to her parents the desire to become a cloistered nun, something that wasn't possible given her strange phenomena and weak constitution. But she did become a third-order third Dominican at age 18, From age 19 for the rest of her life, Louise would have priest-directors appointed formally by her bishop, which marked another defining factor of her life, complete, total, and unquestioning obedience to the church. And each director throughout her life was completely convinced of the validity of her mystical phenomena. At this point, it's worth mentioning something that was never a part of her life until the final days. And that's illness. Her only illness was the pneumonia that took her life at the very end. But this is, is in itself is nothing short of an enormous miracle for anyone who is accustomed to care for bedridden patients. At age 33, she received a new confessor, Father Gennaro, who would serve in this capacity for the next 24 years, And he is the one who would command Luisa under holy obedience to write down her revelations, which was a great penance for her because of her great humility. But her obedience was always perfect, and so she wrote, despite her almost very little, I mean, just a few years of elementary education. St. Hannibal de Francia was then appointed to be Luisa's censor laborum, the role he held until his death in 1927, and that's the person who uh, examines the orthodoxy of her writings. More than a decade earlier, however, deeply convinced of the necessity of Louisa's revelations, he began publishing The Hours of the Passion, I should say more than a decade before he became her spiritual director. He was the one who gave Volumes 1 through 19 of Luisa's diary, the Nihal Opstat, and after, afterwards the Archbishop gave them his imprimatur. Father Benedict Calvi was Luisa's next and final confessor. He was also a zealous advocate and promoter of Luisa's writings and documented an overview of her daily life as follows. I quote, Towards six o'clock in the morning, the confessor was beside her small bed. Luisa was found all curled up, crouched over so tightly that when the sisters or person of the house, in obedience to the confessor of the bishop, had to sit her up in bed in her usual position, they could not move her on account of her weight. It seemed as if she were a huge piece of lead. Only when the confessor on certain occasions and any priest imparted to her his blessing by making the sign of the cross with his thumb on the back of her hand, Luisa's body regained its senses and she began to move. Throughout the 64 years of being nailed, this figurative terminology likens Louisa's bed to the cross of Christ. 64 years of being nailed to her small bed, Louisa never suffered any bed sores. Immediately afterwards, there followed the reading of that which Louisa had written during the night concerning the sublime proofs on the divine will, which was read only by her confessor beside her small bed. There was yet another extraordinary event. What was her food? Everything she had eaten after a few hours came back up completely intact. All these events I observed, scrupulously controlled and subjected to careful examination by many doctors and professors of dogmatic, moral, ascetic, and mystical theology. Each morning after having awakened Louisa in the name of holy obedience, the confessor or another priest celebrated holy mass in her room before the bed. Therefore, having received Holy Communion, she would remain there as though in a trance, in ecstasy, in an intimate conversation with the Lord for two to three hours, but without her body becoming petrified or experiencing the absolute loss of its senses. However, many times throughout the day, she would be with the Lord in a manner that engaged her senses, and on the occasion, the people that were in her company would notice it. Louise would spend her days working at sewing for the church, mostly making altar cloths, something made harder by her mystical sharing in the sufferings of Christ, including, it said she had the hidden stigmata, the suffering of the pains of the wound of Christ in her hands and feet, but invisibly. As noted above, though she truly fasted her entire life after becoming nailed to the bed, she was nevertheless commanded under obedience from the archbishop to attempt to eat each day. This she would always do each afternoon, but a little later, after a small hiccup, all that she consumed would come up perfectly intact. She would then work on her sewing until 10.30 at night, and at some point in the middle of the night, usually between midnight and 1 a.m., she would enter into an ecstatic state like a petrified statue, and thus her mystical experiences, as documented in her writings, ensued. On August 31st, 1938, three of her works were placed on the Index of Prohibited Books. Three months after that, she finished her last writing, as she was no longer bound under obedience to write. Nine years later, on March 4, 1947, Louisa died at age 82, and throngs of thousands lined the streets to pay homage to the Saint of Corrado. In 1994, her cause for beatification and canonization officially was opened by the archdiocese. And in 2006, she was declared a servant of God, which means her cause has passed through the diocesan phase and is now at the Congregation for the Causes of Saints at the Vatican. As I noted in that brief biography, there's been some controversy surrounding the 36 volumes of writing that Picaretta produced based on her locutions with Jesus, collectively known as the Book of Heaven. First, we always note that the Church is always cautious concerning revelations and mystical phenomena. For example, even the Diary of St. Faustina, with its divine mercy, devotion, and image, were suppressed by the Church from 1959 until 1978, mostly due to faulty translations of the diary from the original Polish. St. Padre Pio had his faculties to preach and hear confessions suspended by Vatican authorities for a time. Yet he always submitted in holy obedience. And so the Archbishop of Corrado, or Luisa Pecoretta's diocese, currently has a moratorium on publishing most of the writings of Luisa Pecoretta for public use, for two reasons. One is the need to create a critical edition of her writings, which is a challenging task due to the fact that Luisa wrote in a colloquial Italian dialect where she lived that has to be accurately translated. And second, because the Archbishop criticizes sometimes poor or exaggerated explanations of her writings, although he affirms that her writings themselves are free of doctrinal error. What this means is that while they are, of course, still being published and versions available in print and online, the Church hasn't approved the publishing of her 36-volume diary, just her two shorter writings on the Hours of the Passion and the Virgin Mary in the Kingdom, as well as some of her letters. What is encouraged is to form private prayer groups to use these approved books. And, of course, we are encouraged to pray to the servant of God, Luisa Picaretta. And if any of you happen to have a favor or miracle that occurs through her intercession, be sure to report it to the postulator of her cause for canonization. Unfortunately, as you may be aware, it is very sad that some of those who seek to follow the divine will and this devotion have not equally sought to maintain communion with the church through obedience to their pastors and particularly their bishops. And if you read Raymond Arroyo's latest book on Mother Angelica, Her Grand Silence, you will learn how, unfortunately, this divine will devotion completely polarized her community of nuns at Our Lady of the Angel's Monastery, the Poor Clares of Perpetual Adoration, where they divided just about in half between those who were following the devotion and those who weren't. Therefore, we have to approach this devotion with those same virtues we see exemplified by Louisa complete humility and complete obedience. At this time, the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith says that Louisa's work has neither the approbation nor the condemnation of the church, and has made no further pronouncements on her writings as they're still being studied as part of the process for her canonization and, of course, to make that critical addition. Therefore, we must be ready to accept whatever decisions the Vatican may make. And all prayer groups and readings of her writings need to be done in communion with the local bishop and the local pastor. In the revelations themselves, Jesus seemed to foresee these troubles with the translations and misinterpretations of her writings in these words he gave to Louisa My daughter is my absolute divine will that these writings on my divine will be made known. Despite the many incidents that may occur, my will shall overcome them all. Although it may take years and years, my absolute will knows how to dispose everything to accomplish its objective. The time in which these writings will be made known is relative to and dependent on the disposition of souls who wish to receive so great a good, as well as on the effort of those who must apply themselves and being its trumpet bearers, by offering up the sacrifice of heralding in the new era of peace, the new sun that will dispel the clouds of all evils. And then just something I find very personally fascinating is the way uh, in history we can see those times when the, the lives of different saints cross paths and they influence each other. For example... Today, I didn't really talk about it at Mass. We celebrate the great missionary bishop, St. Terebius, who came from Spain to the New World to become the bishop of Lima, Peru in the early 1600s. And because of his influence, and at that time, in the early 1600s, but the U.S. isn't even a country yet, Lima, Peru has no less than five saints started with the missionary bishop, St. Terebius, who traveled 50,000 miles across his diocese's vast and mountainous terrain to give the sacraments and to give confirmation to both St. Rose of Lima and St. Martin de Porres, who you probably have heard of. St. Terebius certainly also knew St. Francis Solano, a missionary preacher who was head of the Franciscan monastery there in Lima, And St. John Matthias was a dear friend to St. Martin de Porres, as both were Dominican lay brothers. And so there seems to be this confluence of holiness at times. And so I find it interesting that in the life of Luisa Picaretta, a very central figure is St. Hannibal Mary de Francia, born in an aristocratic family in Messina, Italy in 1851. In childhood, he developed such a love for the Eucharist, he was allowed to receive Holy Communion daily, something that was very, very exceptional in those days. He was only 17 when at prayer before the Blessed Sacrament, he deeply felt the vocations in the church come only through prayer, and he immediately responded by placing himself and his talents at the service of God. Ordained a priest at age 26, he made his home in a ghetto of poor and orphans just outside the city, and dedicated himself to the evangelization of and care for the poor. An apostle of charity, he built orphanages and started two religious orders, the Rogationist Fathers and the Sisters of Divine, Divine Zeal, both of which today are present on every continent. Father de Francia, as he was known, had a great love for the priesthood. and is known as the outstanding apostle of the prayer for vocations. He began and encouraged several different initiatives of praying for vocations to the priesthood, which would continue, and many years after his death, culminate in the annual World Day of Prayer for Vocations. Instituted by Pope Paul VI in 1964, we still celebrate it every year on Good Shepherd Sunday, the fourth Sunday of Easter. Even during his lifetime, he had a reputation as a saint that was widespread, St. Hannibal died in Messina on June 1st, 1927, and people began to say, let us go to see the sleeping saint. He died comforted by a vision of the Blessed Virgin Mary, whom he had loved so much during his life. Indeed, he's noted for propagating the devotion to the total consecration taught by St. Louis de Montfort. And he embodied that spirit of complete abandonment into the hands of Mary, And so it was very fittingly canonized in 2004 by Pope St. John Paul II, who was also a great devotee of the Marian consecration. We should do well to imitate the confidence of St. Hannibal de Francia in several ways. One is to never distrust the goodness and mercy of God regarding the pardon of sins, provided that, of course, we have recourse to God in humble and sincere repentance. Second, to never doubt the love of the sacred heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary, even amid miseries, hard times, and persecutions. And third, to trust the promises of Jesus regarding the efficacy of prayer, believing that our prayers will always be answered if said with the correct intention, humility, fervor, perseverance, and in union with the adorable will of God. The connection comes as Father de Francia comes into contact with Luisa Picaretta and her writings in 1910, a decade before he would become her officially appointed confessor. After reading some of Luisa's writings, especially her famous work on the Passion of Our Lord, published under the title The Hours of the Passion, he submitted the manuscript of The Hours of the Passion to Pope St. Pius X, who said to him, Dear Father, you must read this on your knees, because it is our Lord who is speaking in it. And so it was the holy pontiff who urged Father Hannibal to publish it. St. Hannibal went on to uh, want Louisa to live in one of the convent houses of the Sisters of Divine Zeal that he had founded, although that would only take place many years after his death. Father de Francia would not only visit with Louisa regularly, he would introduce many people to Louisa, including dignitaries and bishops, and he would give lectures to the many people who frequented her house and hear their confessions. He was an extraordinary and deeply loved priest, and many who came to his lectures would go on to become sisters and priests themselves. There can be no doubt that Louisa left an imprint upon St. Hannibal and on the Sisters of Divine Zeal, who she lived with for a decade, contributing to their development with her prayers, her advice, and her writings. Thus, Father Hannibal can be said to be one of the first sons of the Divine Will and, consequently, one of the first apostles of the Divine Will. These words of St. Hannibal come from his introduction to the Hours of the Passion, it seems that our Lord, who century after century increases the wonders of his love more and more, wanted to make of this virgin, with no education, whom he called the littlest one that he found on earth, the instrument of a mission so sublime that no other can be compared to it. That is the triumph of the divine will upon the whole earth in conformity with what is said in the Our Father, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. St. Hannibal became so utterly convinced not only the, the legitimacy of Louisa's revelations, but also of their urgency and importance, so that towards the end of his life, he tirelessly worked to approve, publish, print, and disseminate her revelations. Thus, the canonization of St. Hannibal de French is a somewhat confirming sign, because here's a saint who strove to understand and live the gift of the divine will in his own life. And obviously, he achieved great virtue and holiness through that process of dying completely to his own human will, in order to live always and only by and in the divine will. Of course, even saints are not infallible, which is why we must wait for the judgment of the church regarding the writings of Luisa Picaretta. I close with the words of one of St. Hannibal de Francia's letters, written to Luisa during the last two years of his life. He writes, In my current morning meditations, besides the hours of the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm carefully reading and meditating on two or three chapters of your writings on the divine will, and the impressions I get are intimate and profound. I see a sublime and divine science in them, although I have not yet been able to penetrate them thoroughly for my lack of intelligence. It is really necessary to make these writings known to the world now, and I believe they will do a great deal of good. This science of the divine will is lofty, and yet these writings dictated by heaven present the doctrine in all its purity and clearness. According to me, there is no human intelligence that could have conceived them. I continue to read your writings. They are always sublime revelations with illustrations worthy of the divine creator, as, for example, the comparison of the heartbeat to one of the acts of the divine fiat. My point is that it seems a marvel of God's providence, the ways in which he provided Louisa with a saint, not only as her spiritual director, but as the one who published and promoted her writings. He continued to keep her under holy obedience to write, even though it cost her much in personal suffering to write those intimate things concerning herself. He told her this writing was to please adorable Jesus more, to give him greater glory, to obtain your sanctification and the good of souls. And so may we always seek to live in the divine will of God, and so give Jesus Christ all honor and glory. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.